I've asked a few friends to help me today, mostly because I enjoy it and I hope you like it too. There are seven students working among the Pillar community this year, a college intern, four seminary students who are pastoral fellows among us, and two Center for Pastoral Leadership residents. I've asked each of them to read one of the seven I am statements Jesus offers in John's gospel. The I am statements, maybe you heard, you've heard of them. Jesus seven different times says, I am, I am, I am, followed by a word window into a deeper reality of his heart and intention for the whole world. Listen to this. I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the door. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the good shepherd. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the true vine. Mostly that was just for fun and my way of introducing them to you. If you're around town and want to buy them a cup of coffee, I think you would be blessed by the conversation. And maybe we'll come back to those I am statements before the end of our time together. For now, though, the next moment in the big, huge story of your whole life, that's what I'm calling this sermon journey, the big, huge story of your whole life. It's from the book of Exodus, your favorite book in the Bible. Let me bring you up to speed. God promised Sarah a son. Isaac married Rebekah. They had twins, Jacob and Esau. Jacob has a boy, Joseph. Joseph gets left for dead by his brothers, if you can believe that, picked up by raiders and brought to Egypt where he's sold, rises to power and privilege in Egypt. But as is often the case, the place of provision can sometimes become the place of oppression. That's where we pick up the story. After a long time, the king of Egypt died, and the Israelites groaned under their slavery and cried out. In the slavery, their cry for help rose up to God. God heard their groaning. God remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God looked upon them, and God took notice of them. Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian. He led the flock beyond the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. There, the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of a bush. Moses saw that the bush was burning yet was not consumed, and Moses said, I must turn aside to see this great sight, to see why the bush is not burned up. And when God saw Moses turn aside to look, God called to Moses out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And Moses said, here I am. And God said, come no closer. Remove your sandals, for the ground on which you are standing is holy ground. And God said, I am the God of your father. The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. And God also said, I have observed the misery of my people who are in Egypt. 
I've heard their cry on account of their taskmasters. Indeed, I know their suffering, and I have come down to deliver them from the Egyptians, to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to the country of the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Amorites and the Perizzites and the Hivites and the Jebusites. Indeed, I've heard their cry and how the Egyptians oppressed them. So come, I will send you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. And Moses said, who am I that I should bring the people out of Egypt? And God said, I will be with you. And this will be the sign that it is I who sent you. When you bring the people out of Egypt, you will worship God on this mountain. And Moses said, suppose I go to the Israelites and say, the God of your ancestors has appeared to me. And they say, what's his name? What shall I say to them? And God said, I am who I am. God said further, tell them I am has sent you. God also said, tell them the Lord, the God of your ancestors, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. This is my title for all generations. Now go, assemble the elders of Israel and say to them, the Lord your God, the God of your ancestors, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob has appeared to me saying, I've given heed to what has been done to you in Egypt and to the misery that you've experienced. I'm going to bring you up out of that land to the land of the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Amorites and the Perizzites and the Hivites and the Jebusites, a land flowing with milk and honey, they will listen to your voice. You and the elders of Israel shall go to the king of Egypt, and you shall say, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has appeared to us. Now let us go a three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. I know, however, he will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. So then I will stretch out my hand and perform in Egypt all the wonders that I will perform in it. Then he will let you go. I will bring you into such favor with the Egyptians that when you go, you will not go empty-handed. Your women shall ask their neighbors and any woman living in their neighbor's house for jewelry of silver and gold and clothing, and you shall put them on your sons and on your daughters, and so you shall plunder the Egyptians." This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. It's Exodus chapter 2, verses 23 through the end of chapter 3. You're more than welcome to find it in a Bible now if you'd like. This, this moment in the big, huge story of your whole life has had a uniquely significant place in my life. I've shared some of those details with you before. I won't bore you with them again, but I do want to suggest to you this might also have a uniquely significant moment in the big, huge story of your life, too. I want you to see with me a God who notices. And God's notice finds expression in the world through you. Not exclusively, but regularly through you. If you're the note-taking type, that's what you write down. God notices you. And God's notice in the world finds expression through you. That's what I want you to see. Look at this, Exodus 2, 23. After a long time, the king of Egypt died. The Israelites groaned under their slavery and cried out. Out of the slavery, their cry for help rose up to God. God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abram, Isaac, and Jacob. God looked upon the Israelites, and God took notice of them. God notices. God took notice of them. 
We live in a world that doesn't have a ton of room for God. I'm not talking about prayer in schools and Ten Commandments and courthouses kind of arguments. I'm talking about basically we give lip service to God and to things of faith, but God really has no practical value in our lives. And I'm only parroting back what sociologists and theologians have been saying for a long time. Todd Daly, professor of ethics at a seminary in Illinois, in our very modern era, it's not always so easy to discern what difference God makes. Put more sharply, it's easy to live as if God does not exist. And he's only reflecting what my professor at Regent College in Vancouver, Craig Gay, says, the pressure of daily life, our consumer-oriented culture, and our general technical efficacy encourage us to go about our daily lives without giving God much thought. Stated bluntly, there's the assumption that even if God exists, he's largely irrelevant to the real business of life. To put this more tactfully, contemporary society and culture so emphasize human potential and human agency and the immediate practical exigencies of the here and now that we are, for the most part, tempted to go about our daily business in this world without giving God much thought. Indeed, we are tempted to live as if God did not exist, or at least as if his existence did not practically matter. We live in a world where God practically doesn't matter. We give lip service to God through creeds and with our songs, but mostly we rely on our human capacities, our human agencies, the resources we've accumulated. We just don't need God. And then, eventually, sooner or later, there comes a moment in your life, a season, where your human capacity and your human agency and all the resources you accumulated just don't have the capacity to get you through that moment or season. And you cry out to God. Back to Exodus. They had found their way into Egypt through Joseph. Joseph had been left for dead by his brothers, picked up by raiders, sold in Egypt. He rose to power and privilege. There was a famine in the land of the Israelites, so they come to Egypt looking for provision only to find their brother, who they thought was dead, is now alive, who, out of the goodness of God's heart, forgives his brothers and provides for them. And then, wonder of wonders, they begin to flourish. They begin to thrive in Egypt. But as is often the case, the place of provision quickly becomes the place of oppression. And they found themselves in that moment. They found themselves in that season. And they cried out to God. And God heard, God remembered, God looked, God took notice. That's God's heart. We may live as if God doesn't exist or doesn't have much practical value for our lives, but God's heart is always to take notice. That's been the story of the Bible from the beginning. After the catastrophe we call the fall, God showed up to Adam and Eve and noticed them by clothing them from the shame of their nakedness. And then Cain, even with blood on his hands, God showed up and marked Cain for safety. And then Noah with the ark and Sarah with the promise and Esther with a precious moment and Ruth with a home and Elijah with fire from heaven and David with forgiveness until the fullness of time when the world 
seemed more like a horror movie that would never end, he sent his son, Jesus Christ, the crucified king, who on that cross would cry out, Father, forgive them, who went to the grave to defeat sin and death, only to rise up in resurrection, and all because he took notice. God notices you, college student, who doesn't think anybody notices. God notices you, parent, trying to raise your kid in the way they should go in a cultural moment that doesn't share your values. God notices you, retiree, even though the emails aren't coming and the phone's not ringing. God notices you, spouse, even though she doesn't seem to have time for you and he doesn't have much to say to you. God notices you. That's God's heart. That's God's way. We may live as if God doesn't exist, but God acts. God shows up. God heard. God remembered. God looked. God noticed. And let me add, God's notice is never meant exclusively for your private benefit, but always to continue the unfolding story of God's redemption in the world, the big story of redemption. God's notice is not just for my private benefit, but to continue the unfolding story of salvation. God called Moses not just so the Israelites might have a happier day, but rather to lead them into freedom, into the promised land, so that the story of salvation might continue that culminates in Jesus Christ. So if you're looking for God's notice based solely on how it's going in your circumstances, you might need to clear off your glasses and look for the unfolding story of God's salvation. God heard, God remembered, God looked, God notices you. And then the story takes a massive shift. This is the God's notice in the world finds expression through you. It takes this massive shift from the big meta story of a God who notices to the particularities of one guy's life. Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro. It's almost jarring, like a Bible's version of ADD. God heard, God remembered, God looked, God noticed them. Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, like that scene from the movie Up when the dog squirrel God heard, God remembered, God looked, God noticed Moses. Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian. This big, huge meta story of God finds expression in the world through the local particularities of a guy's life. Uh, Craig Gay, the same professor from Regent College in a book titled The Way of the Modern World or Why It's Easy to Live as If God Doesn't Exist, Christian hope or for our language today, God's notice, Christian hope frees us to act hopefully in the world. It enables us to act humbly and patiently, tackling visible injustices in the world around us without needing to be assured that our skill and our effort will somehow rid the world of injustice altogether. Christian hope, after all, does not need to see what it hopes for, and neither does it require us to comprehend the end of history. Rather, It simply requires us to trust that even the most outwardly insignificant of faithful actions, the cup of cold water given to the child, the widow's mite offered at the temple, the act of hospitality shown to the stranger, none of which has any overall strategic socio-political significance so far as we can see now, will nevertheless be made to contribute in some significant way to the construction of God's kingdom by the action of God's creative and sovereign grace, which is a really 
sophisticated way of saying God's notice in the world finds expression through you. Now, Moses, Moses gets this call to act, to, to, to be the spokesperson for freedom, and Moses asks the only appropriate question, the question we would ask too. We ask still, who am I? Moses says, who am I to bring your, the people out of Egypt? Who am I? Moses asks, and who am I? We ask, I'm just a pastor on the corner of Ninth and College in a crazy world. Who am I? I'm just a parent trying to raise my kid decently. Who am I? I'm just an employee working the floor. Who am I? I've got a past. I carry shame. I just want to go under the radar. Who am I? Well, let me, let me fill you in on a few of the details of Moses' life. Moses was an orphan. He didn't have the privilege of a nuclear biological family. Maybe because he was raised by people who didn't speak his language, he also developed some sort of speech impediment. Maybe he couldn't quite get his R's and L's out, or he actually had a stutter. I'm not entirely sure. So he's this orphan with a speech impediment who, because of his heart passion for his family, actually kills a guy and goes on the run where he meets a girl, marries her, and so is employed by her dad as a shepherd, which is a important thing to do, but not exactly an impressive thing to do. So Moses, the orphan, the stuttering orphan who killed the guy is just keeping the sheep out in the wilderness. That's the one God chooses to deliver his people from slavery in Egypt. Who am I? Moses asks. And who am I? We might ask still. And God does not coddle Moses. Oh, Moses, you're so important. Like that, uh, what about Bob? I feel good. I feel great. I feel wonderful. God doesn't seem to feel the need to coddle Moses. Moses asks, who am I? God responds, I am. God is not dissuaded from accomplishing his purposes in the world because of your shame or your insecurity or whatever else you think about you. The point is not who am I. The promise is I am, God says. I am who I am. And one day Jesus Christ would take this story on himself and offer it back to the world. That's why I had, had my friends read those seven I am statements. I am, Jesus says. I am, Jesus says. And God's notice in the world finds expression through us when we go the way of the I am. In a world that feels more like something out of the Old Testament, we go the way of the I am and bear the fruit of the Spirit, love. Joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. In a world obsessed with power, who has it and how are they going to use it? We go the way of the I am, the way of the cross, the way of humility, the way of patience. In a, in a world so technologically advanced we can be connected with anyone anywhere, we find ourselves more relationally isolated, we go the way of the I am and offer hospitality to strangers. God's notice in the world finds expression through you when you go the way of the I am. I'm thinking of those words from C.S. Lewis at the end of Mere Christianity. You've heard them. Look for yourself. And you'll find in the long run only hatred, loneliness, despair, rage, ruin, and decay. But look for Christ, and you'll find him. And with him, everything else thrown in. The point is not, who am I? The promise is, I am. 
I was in a conversation with a friend of mine. His name is Alpha, Alpha Monterey. This was about a week ago or so. Alpha's uh, amazing. If you're around Holland and you can find him, I think you would very much enjoy a cup of conversation with Alpha. He's married to Marcia. Uh, Marcia is an epidemiologist here in Ottawa County. Most of us had no idea what epidemiology was and what, that there was a profession called epidemiologist until about 18 months ago when the invisible enemy began to wreak its havoc on our lives. We started paying attention. Marsh has been paying attention for a long, long time to invisible enemies. I don't know if you've heard, but there's some tension around this whole how to deal with the invisible enemy, trying to figure out how to care for our families and tend to the common good. And Marsh has been caught in the crosshairs of the tension. A couple of weeks ago, there was some public meeting somewhere where dozens into the hundreds of people expressed their frustration and anger. It was very contentious, and a lot of it pointed its anger at my friend Marcia. Now, I'm a pastor. Some people think of pastors as shepherds. I think of this pastor more as a sheepdog. You mess with someone in the pillar flock, and I'm going to bark. So I texted Marcia the next day to see how she was doing. She said, I think we're going to get away for a few days. That made a ton of sense to me. I said, how can we, the Pillar Faith community, show our love and care and support? And she responded, surprisingly to me, I'm so grateful for Pillar and the way it's comported itself in the last 18 months. So I'm with Alpha, her husband, about a week ago. And I said, Alpha, how are you? And he smiled and he said, I'm good. And I said, no, really? How are you in light of all of this tension? And he smiled, his big Alpha smile, and he said, Sometimes people need undeserved grace. That is not what I was expecting to hear. In our polarized world, we go eye for eye. We go tit for tat. You yell at me, I'll yell louder at you, or at least I'll talk about you behind your back. But sometimes people need unmerited grace. That's the way of the I am. God's notice in the world finds expression through you. Amen? In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, amen.